Reading from Isaiah 63 and 64. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart? so that we fear you not. Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you are you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? The word of the Lord. be to God. Let's uh, pray before we uh, look at this passage further. Lord, again, uh, we're reminded of your word that says the one that you delight in is the one who is humble and contrite in heart and who trembles at your word with an awareness that when you speak, it is weighty and important and so worthy of listening to. And Lord, we can't even listen well apart from your help. Um, and, so, and so we ask for your help. We ask that you would help me, that even as I'm speaking, I would be listening to your word, that I would be speaking clearly, that all of us would be those who tremble at your word and hear you as you speak to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as I've already mentioned, we are continuing this series thinking about joy. Um, specifically, that joy is one of the great, one of the greatest even gifts that God gives to his people. It's a kind of complicated thing to be able to talk about. It's you know, a little bit different when we're talking about, say, things like um, telling the truth or, or things that are more tangible and practical. 
joy, we're talking about something that's very interior. And so it's hard to be able to name things well, which is part of the reason why I think it's valuable for us to take longer to think this through. Um, so what we've been talking about to this point is that, first of all, God is joyful. He is joyful beyond our ability to comprehend. For all eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit have been a God of joy. And when he made us, he made us so that we could share in that joy with him. That is our calling, to enjoy the joy of God. And when we sinned and when we turned our backs on him, when Jesus came to redeem us, he came to rescue us, to bring us back into the joy. God desires to give you and me joy. And our calling is to, to receive it, to, to allow the joy that God has for us to become a part of us, to pursue this joy, um, which we've said involves a, really a receptivity and an openness to hearing what God has to say to us. And a surrender of sorts, a, a, an allowing of God to rework us, to teach our hearts that our greatest joy is in him, to teach our hearts to worship him. And it's this surrender that I think is especially the, the complicated part of taking hold of the joy that God has for us. Because we still hold on to the idea that that it works best for us if we're able to maintain some degree of control. That, that the pathway to joy, even though we actually have a pretty good track record to show that we're not good at this, we still are convinced in some deep way that what we want is to hold on, is to hold on to our life, is to hold on to control, so that as, as we're told that the only way to joy is to let go, it feels like, and Scripture even uses this language, a kind of death. And that's the challenge. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis put it that, that God wants to give us something, but there is no room because our hands are already full. And the challenge, really, the key obstacle to the joy that God has for us is us holding tightly onto our own control, our own sense of what will make us happy. I remember, I know of a man who became convinced not only that God was real, but he actually became convinced of the claims of Scripture about who Jesus is and about the gospel. But he ultimately decided that he couldn't he couldn't become a Christian. And he was really honest, actually, about why. He said, honestly, I'm, I'm afraid that if I started following Christ, he would make me give up my car, my Jaguar. Well, that, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Like A Jaguar of all cars. But even apart from that, to say that, that you have this and you're saying, I just need to hold on to my car. Except the reality is that each of us have our own version of that. Each of us have some, some aspect of life that we are holding on tightly to where we feel like we need to still have veto power. Like, God, you can, you can ask me to do this, you can ask me to do this, but this, this you can't ask me. This I have to hold on to. And, and it is that, it is that, that is what's keeping us as long as we're holding on to these things, it is keeping us from joy. 
Last week, we talked about our, our problem sometimes is not that our desire is too strong for joy, but too weak. Remember, C.S. Lewis talks about how we're content to be making mud pies in the slums, and we can't even conceive of God offering us a vacation at the sea. And we might nod at that and say, yeah, that sounds right. Except here's the thing. We really like our mud pies. We, we're really unconvinced that this offer of a day at the sea is better than what we have in our hands. I'm reminded of the the young rich ruler. Do you remember that? This man comes to Jesus, and after a back and forth, he's essentially just asking, what needs to happen for me to have eternal life? And, and Jesus eventually says, here's what needs to happen. You need to sell all that you have and give to the poor, and then come, follow me, and you will have treasures in heaven. And oftentimes when we hear that story, we go, man, he's asking a lot. But if you just think about it, you realize, no, he's offering a lot. He is saying, just give up the things that you have. And think about, I mean, this, this guy, he was rich, and that meant he had some servants, he had some camels, he didn't have electricity, he didn't have air conditioning. His life was still, you know, not great by our standards. And on the other hand, he's saying, you get to follow me. Imagine the offer to be one who is there with Jesus day in and day out. But more than that, he says, and I will give you what you're asking for. I will give you treasures in heaven. Think of this, a couple camels for a few years and eternal joy of knowing Christ. Is there any question as to what's the better choice? Jesus is saying, let go of the control that you have, the things that you think will give you joy, and, and take hold of this gift that I have for you where there will be real joy. And I think, I wonder if even deep down the young rich ruler realized this is an obvious choice, and yet he couldn't do it. He held on to his mud pies. And that, that so often is, is the story for you and me. There are things that we are holding on to that God is saying, if you, if you just hold them with an open hand and let me fill your hands with what I have for you, your joy would be so much greater. And, and this problem that we have, where we don't see, where we hold on to the very thing that is going to keep us from joy. This leads to what is sometimes referred to as God's mysterious, severe mercy. Because the truth that we see in Scripture is that sometimes, because God loves us, he will bring us through suffering in order to lead us to joy. Sometimes he will bring us through suffering in order to lead us to joy. Now, I want to be clear about this. I am not saying that every time that we are suffering, it's because there is something that God is needing to accomplish in us, some sin that he is working on. There are times that we experience pain and there is no clear lesson. Just think of the story of Job. And I'm also not saying that we need suffering to be able to grow. You can grow sometimes through times of great joy and, and, and plenty. But what I am saying is sometimes, and perhaps especially in those moments that we're holding tight to something that we need to let go of, God in his severe mercy uses pain to help lead us into joy. I've been already mentioning C.S. Lewis a couple times because I think he does such a good job of helping us to think through the way pain and joy work in, in, in the care of God. 
And um, in his book, The Problem of Pain, he actually spent some time talking about this very idea of how God uses pain not to punish, but to actually bring us the gifts that we most deeply want. And he says pain has, has a couple ways that God works in it. One of the things he says that pain and suffering does is it has the potential of waking us up. Um, we can just be kind of in this fog where we're not paying attention. And even things that God does to help us notice stuff, like our, our conscience, God is at work in our conscience, reminding us of what is good. And, and even the pleasures that we experience, they're, they're meant to remind us of the beauty and greatness of God. But there is something especially about pain, about suffering, that, that gets our attention, right? Uh, so uh, what Lewis writes is he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And we understand what Lewis is talking about there, don't we? That, that we can be in this kind of day-in, day-out repetition where our heads are just down. We've got to get one thing done and another thing done and another thing done. And then something hard happens and our heads lift up. Like, like we experience the death of someone who loves us, that we love. And suddenly we're looking at life differently. Or, or we can experience this great disappointment of what we were anticipating. Or, or we can be in a global pandemic and suddenly we're noticing life in a way that we weren't before. Pain has this way of, of awakening us. But Lewis says there's also something else, a second way that God works through pain. And that is that pain, that suffering, has a way of exposing a way of revealing. When we counter, encounter hardship, we start seeing our life differently. And we start recognizing that it doesn't actually have the ability to sustain us. So sometimes it might be just like recognizing the emptiness of what we are focusing on, that it's just not as important as it felt. Sometimes it could be things feel important, but we realize we, we can't hold on to them, that, that, that they're slipping through our fingers because they won't last. But, but there's a way that suffering kind of brings truth to the lie, and it helps us to see that the things we're clinging on to aren't capable of giving us the joy that we're pursuing. And it's this work that God uses to enable us slowly to open our hand so that we can let go of the things standing in the way and take hold of what God has for us. Now, this doesn't always work this way. Um, you know, sometimes it's entirely possible, in fact, that when we go through hardship, we can respond not in a positive way, but an unhealthy way of, of bitterness. But there's an invitation there when we go through hardship. There's an invitation when, when as the Spirit can actually work in this, it can start leading us in the way that we need to go. And, and I think that's actually what we are seeing in the passage that Anne just read, our passage for this morning. It's, it's a prayer. It's, it's a lament. There is sorrow in this prayer written by one man, but he's speaking on behalf of the people of Israel. Now, for, 
for many years, if you've been studying Isaiah with me, you know for years Israel has not been who they are called to be. That, um, you know, at one point in the middle of Isaiah, God says, these people honor me with their lips, but they're far from me in their hearts. And, and that's the issue. They are religious. They do the sacrifice thing, the fasting thing. But, but deep down, it is not God they are seeking. It is their own control they're seeking. And God is just an accessory. And then they're brought through intense suffering. An army overtakes them. Their cities lie in ruins. Their temple is destroyed and they are forcibly taken. This is intense trauma and it has awoken them. It has exposed them. And at first, as we saw earlier, back in chapter 40, for example, they, they have not been responding healthily. They have been bitter. They have been hopeless. But somewhere along the line, we see something different taking place. And here we see in this suffering an opening of a hand and a turning of their face upward. And I think the reason we have this passage here is because oftentimes I think before the Spirit does a work in us, he first tells us or he shows us what his work looks like. And I think we're actually meant to pay attention here to how the Spirit is softening, how he's working in this broken people. So that as we pay attention, maybe we can notice the Spirit doing the same thing in us in the time of hardship that we're encountering right now as God is at work to lead us to joy. So in our passage, uh, we have three stanzas. There are the final five verses of 63. There are the first seven verses of 64. And then there are the final five verses of 64 as well. And and roughly, you can see in each stanza a, a specific focus and, and a movement from, from awakening to longing to asking. So it starts with awakening. Awakening, there's an awakening that's happening amongst them for a need for God. Notice how it begins. Look down from heaven. He's speaking to God, of course. Look down from heaven and see. And he says, where are your zeal and might? And he, he recognizes that, that God's compassion is being held back. And what's going on here is he has, he has looked at his suffering and he's made a connection. He realizes that at the very heart of the problem that he is enduring right now is an absence of God. It's like he's tracing the thread back, and at the end of the thread that the pain is, there is God. I, you know, the, maybe you're familiar with this Greek uh, myth, I think it's of Theseus, where he has to go into a labyrinth to face a minotaur, and, and one of the things he brings with him is a spool of thread, and he ties the thread to the very entrance so that wherever he is in the labyrinth, however lost he feels, all he needs to do is pull back on this thread and eventually it will lead him where he needs to go. And there is a sense that, that the writer of this prayer, the one who's praying it, has been pulling back on the thread of his suffering and his pain, and he has realized that at the very end of the thread is God. 
So he is aware that they, the people, are not what they should be, that there is a brokenness about them. You know, he acknowledges that Abraham, our, our, our fathers, would not even recognize us. We're not who we should be. And notice that he doesn't just attribute that to their error, to mistakes. Notice verse 17, Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Now, to be clear, he's not blaming God for their sin. He will own his sin later in this passage. He does. What he is acknowledging is their utter dependence. Lord, without you, without your help, we can't even turn to you. Lord, our problem is not just our own mistake. Our problem is we need you. He does the same thing when he looks outside of himself at, at the problems. Notice he mentions about how our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. This is talking about the great suffering in Trump, but notice what he attributes it to. He says, we have become like those over whom you have never ruled. Lord, what's going on here is we need you. There's a tracing of the pain and awareness that at the heart what is needed is not just some superficial solutions. What's needed is the presence of God. And I wonder if we were to do the same thing, what we would find. If we were to do the same thing even right now, I think of our circumstances and what I'm struck by as people are trying to make sense of all that's going on is just how everyone wants to blame someone. We should blame China. We should blame the CDC. We should blame the government. We should blame the people who don't trust the government. There's all, there's like thousands of different ways to blame. There's economic problems. There's, I mean, it's, and, and at a certain point you need to recognize, hey, if everyone is pointing the finger at someone, what does that say? Maybe the problem is more than just a human error. I think we would like to think it's a human mistake because, well then, hey, if they made a mistake, someone else is right, we're great. But, but maybe the problem goes deeper. Maybe the problem is that this world does not work without God being in charge. Maybe what we're being shown is how deeply we need God. Or what if you were to tread, you know, pull on the thread of, of what you are personally enduring, not just what's happening, but how, how you're facing it. I know for me, there are times that I'm, I'm struggling with this. And some of it is absolutely legitimate. We're meant to be connected to each other. So we should grieve the absence. But some things I feel like as I'm really noticing what's going on inside of me, I'm, I'm finding things being exposed. Where, where one of my problems is I, I have not turned to God in the way that I should. There is an absence of God. What we see here is the spirit awakening awakening to the need for God. And then when we get to the, the second stanza, beginning in 64 verse 1, it moves from kind of an awareness to a desire. It moves from awakening to longing. Do you see that, that just that longing that's expressed in verse 1? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. You would tear apart the heavens. The heavens here is a metaphor. It's, it's being used as an image where it's kind of like a wall that stands between God's presence and us. Uh, you might have noticed when Anne was reading how often that word presence is repeated in these verses. So verse 1 talks about tremble at your presence. Verse 3, quake at your presence. Verse 4, I mean, sorry, I skipped even verse one already talks about mountains might quake at your presence. It's a repeated idea, and 
maybe you go, what's going on? Isn't God everywhere? Well, yes, he is. But there is a sense, especially when we're speaking metaphorically, where, where at times God removes himself, removes his influence. In fact, the word presence here literally is your face. We need to see your face. We're, we're removed from your face. You know how it is. When you see someone face to face, you see them, they see you. They're very connected to what's going on. Well, there is a sense where at times God gives us space to make our own choices. He leaves us to himself. There is a, a, a sense in which there sometimes is a barrier between God's face and us. And, and what what we hear this longing for is for that barrier to be removed, for, for God's face to be seen. Oh, that you would tear apart this barrier. Oh, that you would come down, that we would meet with you face to face, that you would be present. Now, he knows, as he is longing for this, that what he's longing for is terrifying. He acknowledges that right away, doesn't he? He says, oh, that you would do this, that the mountains might quake. And, and he draws to mind in verse 3, when that actually happens. You know, when God's face is seen in some real way, when his presence is experienced, it is terrifying. In Mount Sinai, when God was there, the entire mountain shook. There was thunder, there was trumpets, there was fire. People said, we can't bear it. Or think of Isaiah, when Isaiah is able in a vision to come before God face to face in the temple, and he says, I am undone. He can't bear it. Even in the New Testament, when it talks about the Spirit being present, it speaks about great fear being upon everyone. Because here's what happens. When God draws near he exposes the lie that we are comforted by. And that lie is that we have some degree of control. But when we are before God, we realize we are entirely in his hands. And he has the ability to do whatever we want. And we are helpless. And it can be terrifying. It's not just in the times of the Bible that this kind of terror is described. Uh, I was reading an account of a revival that happened about 100 years ago in China. By revival, I mean, I suppose you could say a time where God kind of shows his face, where the spirit seems to be more than normally involved and, and very clearly present. And one eyewitness described, there was this time in, in Manchuria in China where many people started, after being invited to, confessing their sins openly before their congregation, acknowledging their need for God and forgiveness. And and one eyewitness described it this way. He said, words of mine will fail to describe the awe and the terror of these confessions. It was not so much the enormity of the sins disclosed that shocked one. It was the agony of the penitent, their groans and cries and voices shaken with sobs impelled, as it seemed, to lay bare their hearts. This was what moved one and brought the smarting tears to one's own eyes. It was good, but it was terrifying. And not having had experience just like that, but I think I've spoken before about how during college there was a time where we experienced kind of an unusual working of the Spirit. I remember it. It was frightening. There is a sense of being upended, a sense of realizing how small you are and how big God is. And that's, 
That's the kind of fear that he's praying for. When he says, tear apart the heavens, would you come down? The mountains will shake. And he realizes that. But he wants it. He longs for it. And the reason is because he knows what is true when God is not present. He knows what he is lacking with the absence of God. Verse 7, we see the opposite. Remember, the first few verses keeps on talking about before your face, before your face, before your face. Verse 7, there is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us. You have, you have in some ways removed your influence. Scripture speaks clearly that one of the ways that God disciplines, one of the ways that God judges, is to remove his influence. Romans 1 says that when people rebel against God, when they rejected him, God hands them over to their desires. He gives people what they want. He lets them go the direction they want to go and gives them the control for at least a period of time that they think that they have. And that's what's happened here. God has hidden his face. And, and here's what he has realized as he's praying. As I do my own thing, it's not that I find myself. It's that I've lost myself. We have lost ourselves. Notice how he describes what's happened. He says, we've become like one who's unclean. Our, our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We think we're doing right, but it is so tainted by self-interest when you drill down. Notice verse 6. six. We, uh, we fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the winds, take us away. Here's what he's saying, that, that over time, as, as more and more we're just kind of taking control and doing our own thing, we're, we're shriveling up. We're, we're losing ourselves. We're losing the ability to do what is good, what is right, and and we become so dry and withered that our iniquities, our desires, are just able to blow them wherever it wants to go. So you also have in that final verse that that you have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. We, with you being gone, we are helpless. Whether it is anger, whether it is pride, whether it is this desire for control, whether it is laziness, as God removes himself, each of us more and more become enslaved to those desires that we think we prized before. And what he has realized in this suffering as things have been exposed to him is that that is not a life. As terrifying as it is he wants, he knows he does not want God's absence. He wants God's terrifying presence. He longs for God. And I wonder if even in, in this time for us, whether God is beginning to create in us a longing, not just for things to get better, but whether he is awakening in us and deepening in us a desire he would be more present in our lives. So we move from the first movement where it's an awakening and then a longing. And finally, in, in the final verses, we have asking. It moves from desire to action. So we see that asking in the very second verse. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord. In verse 9, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. He's asking. And it's a helpless asking. 
Have you ever been in a situation where you ask someone else a question that matters so deeply to you and you have no control over the answer? I mean, sometimes it can be kind of a good thing, right? Like, you know, will you marry me would be kind of a joyful example of that. Or even when we apply for a job, there's, there's an optimism, a hopefulness. But, but what if actually you realize, unlike marriage, because marriage, hopefully you have a, a pretty good sense of, of the other person prizing you as much as you prize them. What happens if you realize you have nothing to offer? That there is no good reason that the other person would do what you're asking. There is an incredible vulnerability. And that's what we see here. These, by suffering, they have been stripped down to kind of this helpless asking. They've realized that they have no bargaining power. He's already acknowledged how sinful they are, how void of any good impulse without God they are. Which is why, if you look at the very end, it ends with an uncertainty. There's, there's no super confidence that of course God will want us back. They ask, will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? They, they don't know because they don't have any leverage. The best they can do is just cling to the mercy of God. Remember, God, you are our Father, even though we've abandoned you. Lord, look. Look and see our suffering. It's a prayer for mercy. And I think what we see is as, as God kind of strips us down to some degree through the hardship that we encounter, he, he makes us aware of maybe at least two things. One is just of how deeply we need God. And yet he also makes us aware of how we have nothing to offer him in return. And so all we're left to do is just helplessly to ask, Lord, have mercy, even though I don't deserve it. And it's as we do that we discover, I think, the third truth that God desires to teach us. And that is, even though we have nothing in our hands to bring, yet God delights to give us exactly what we ask for. There is a way where this passage is the culmination, or at least it is finally the destination where things have been going. Because, and I know this is kind of hard, I'm asking you to, to think back to September when things were very different, right? And our very, I think, second week we were looking at Isaiah, we were looking at most of Isaiah 1. And, and maybe you remember that Isaiah 1 actually is a lament written by God, where he is grieving he says, I've raised my people, they are my children, and even though donkeys know their parents and their masters, my children don't know me. And, and he looks on them, and they are bruised and battered by their enemy, and, and he longingly says, if only they would come to me, I, I could heal them, and yet they're refusing to acknowledge their need. And, and he says to his people, as they're bruised and battered but unaware or unwilling, he says, come. Come, let us talk about this. Come to me. And if you do, here's what I want to tell you. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they might be red like crimson, they're going to become 
like wool. And he doesn't explain himself how that's going to happen. It's only as we continue to read through the prophecy of Isaiah that we realize just how committed God is to this. When we talk about God in his mercy leading us through suffering, but the even deeper truth is that God, to bring us joy, goes through an even deeper suffering himself. That the reason he is able to offer to make us white as snow is that his son endures our suffering in our place. For our sake, he was crucified. Isaiah 53, we like sheep have gone astray. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He suffered so that he might forgive. And and now we see that finally, finally it's happened. As God longs for them to return, finally they, they say, God, will you have mercy on us? And he says, come, you are talking to me. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Just think of what he's saying. There is nothing that we can do no way of preparing ourselves, no way of qualifying ourselves. There is no way of kind of getting us to the point. There is just this helpless asking. God says, yes, that's, that's what I want for you. Come with an empty hand and I will fill it with joy. We're in the strangest time of my life, probably for many of your lives. And and there's so much that God is doing that we won't be able to understand for years, if ever. But I want to ask you to, to kind of inquire of your life in a way I suspect you've already been doing and, and ask, is the Spirit doing this work that we're seeing in these verses? I want to invite you to, to kind of pull on the thread of those things that have been really hard for you and see where God is leading you, what he is asking you to know. And, and I want you to pay attention to see if the Spirit is creating in you a longing. Because I am convinced that whatever else God is doing, one of the things he is doing is he is seeking to lead us into deeper and fuller joy. And I'm also convinced that one of the things he is leading us to do to get there is helplessly, humbly to ask. So I would like to invite us to spend a few minutes doing that, quietly confessing where we have pursued the wrong things. I mean, all that we're talking about today is the very thing that God said in chapter 55, let, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous his thoughts and let him come to me. And so I invite us to spend some time turning from the things we're holding on tightly to and opening our hands, acknowledging our sin and asking for God's mercy. And then in a couple of minutes, rather than me leading us in prayer, we're actually going to be singing together the words of confession from Psalm 51. So be ready after a couple of minutes of silence um, for um, us to be le being led together in song and to be singing as part of our confession. So let's, let's spend some time in silent confession and prayer. <laughs>